will improvise this morning. But that's been seen by about 13 million people. And, and it's just something, it just puts a smile on your face, doesn't it? When you see just the gratefulness that that guy had. I hope that all of us in this room this Christmas season are grateful for the gifts that the Lord has given us. You know, last week we began this Advent series looking at prophecy and hope. And if you recall, we, we, we looked at um, the words of Isaiah. In Isaiah chapter 9, verse 7, we read these words, The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. And what Isaiah was prophesizing was the first advent, the first coming of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. He prophesied those words hundreds of years before Jesus came. And guess what? Jesus came, didn't he? And in that passage of Scripture, he talks about how Jesus would be wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And that is exactly who the King of Kings, Lord of Lords, Jesus Christ is. This morning, we're going to be looking at, at, at our second Advent sermon. And we're going to specifically be looking at Bethlehem and love. Have you ever wondered why God chose Bethlehem as the birthplace of Jesus? Why would God choose a place that was so small and so insignificant within present day Israel to be the birthplace of the King of Kings, Lord of Lords, Jesus Christ? Why did he do that? You know, have you ever asked yourself, why didn't Jesus, why wasn't he born in Jerusalem? That would make since, being that Jerusalem's mentioned over 600 times in Scripture, it was the place where the temple was, where the Holy of Holy was. It was the place where um, worship would occur. It was the center of all religious activity. Why didn't Jesus, why wasn't he born in Nazareth? After all, that's a place where Mary and Joseph were from. It, from a safety standpoint, it would make sense that he'd be born there, right? It would have kept them from having to travel so many miles to get to Bethlehem. What about Rome? Why not Rome? Man, Rome was the, the center of, of, of political activity. And, you know, the saying is, if you could reach Rome, you could reach the world. If Jesus would have been born there, would that not have, 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 have expedited the gospel message? Or what about Greece, center of philosophy and knowledge? I mean, being that Jesus is the word and the, and, and the author of knowledge, you would think that that would have been a good place as well. But God doesn't work the way that we think God should work, right? We would never have chosen Bethlehem, but that's exactly the place that the Lord chose to enter into human history. It was a city small among the clans of Judah. It was a city least among the rulers of Judah. God has a history within Scripture of using small, insignificant people to accomplish his significant purpose, doesn't he? Think about Noah. Noah, in a world full of wickedness, Scripture tells us in Genesis 6-8 that Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Abraham. Abraham became the father of a people that had no land and no identity. At a time when his wife was barren, God takes him outside and says in Genesis 15, these words, look toward heaven and number the stars. If you were able to number them, then he said to him, so shall your offspring be. And he believed the Lord and he counted it to him as righteousness. Moses, 
Now, Moses could not speak. In Exodus 4, we read, But Moses said to the Lord, O my Lord, I am not eloquent either in the past or since you have spoken to your servant, but I am slow of speech and of tongue. Then the Lord said to him, Who has made man's mouth? Who makes him mute or deaf or seeing or blind? Is it not I, the Lord? How about Gideon? Gideon with an army of 300 The Lord used Gideon to defeat an army that was so large that it could not be calculated. In Judges 7, we read, And the Midianites and Malachites and all the people of the east lay along the valley like locusts in abundance, and their camels were without number as the sand that is on the seashore in abundance. Rahab was a prostitute who joined the bloodline of Jesus. David was a shepherd boy who becomes Israel's greatest king. The disciples were 12 ordinary men. They were fishermen and tax collectors. They were not loved by anybody, but God chose them to change the world. Stephen was a servant appointed by the church to wait on tables and to help the widows. Ananias became the first person Paul would see after his conversion whenever those scales were removed from his eyes. God has always taken nobodies, and he has turned them into somebodies. You know, there's a song that Casting Crowns and Matthew West sing called, it's, it's called Nobody. And in that song, these are the first part of those lyrics. He says, it says, why you ever chose me has always been a mystery. All my life I've been told I belong at the end of a line. With all the other not quites, with all the never get it rights, but it turns out they are the ones you were looking for all the time. Because I'm just a nobody trying to tell everybody all about somebody who saved my soul. Ever since you rescued me, you gave my heart a song to see. I'm living for the world to see nobody but Jesus. Moses had stage fright, and David brought a rock to a sword fight. You picked 12 outsiders nobody would have chosen, and you changed the world. Well, the moral of the story is everybody's got a purpose. So when I hear that devil start talking to me, saying, who do you think you are? I say, I'm just a nobody trying to tell everybody all about somebody who saved my soul. God has a history of using nobodies like each one of us in this room, right? using nobodies to turn us into somebodies. And I want you to know that you are not a nobody this morning. You are a somebody if you've been saved by the Lord Jesus Christ because you are his. You are his possession and you are loved by him. In 1 Corinthians 1, 28, we read, God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are. You know, Bethlehem may have been little, but it certainly was not insignificant. Turn with me in your Bibles to Luke chapter 2. We're going to be looking at verses 1 through 7, and then we're going to kind of look um, at several Old Testament passages this morning and New Testament passages. We're going to be kind of bouncing around this morning a little bit. But Luke chapter 2, verses 1 through 7, we get the account of when Joseph and Mary come to Bethlehem. But we read these words. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria. And all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth, to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, 
who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling clothes and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the end. Let me ask you this question. How many of you have ever been in a situation where you did not know where you were going to sleep that particular night? Have you ever been there? You know, I remember um, when Connor was, was young, and I've shared this story with you before, but Connor was young, and, and um, we had this genius plan, okay? Um, if you know, I'm, if I'm involved, it probably wasn't just real genius. Um, but we had this plan that Connor was getting tubes that morning. And, and, and so we, like, we were like, you know, he's had surgeries before, and we know kind of how he is when he comes out of um, the anesthesia. He's real draw, um, tired and everything. And so we thought, well, let's do this. I had to go to Gulf Shores, Alabama to look at a, a, at a camp location. And so I was like, well, why don't we have the surgery, and then later in the afternoon, um, we'll just load him up in the car and we'll drive to, um, to, to Opelousas, Louisiana, where we had made a reservation for the night. And, and Danny somehow thought that was a great idea. And so we load it up in the car and we start driving toward Louisiana. And we, we make it to Opelousas. It was, it was late at night. It was probably 9 or 10 o'clock at night or maybe even later than that. But we go in. Um, I go to get checked into the hotel and we realize that there is a, a complication with our reservation. And so meaning that there was no room for us in that particular inn that night. Um, and so this is also about the same time that... Um, that Katrina hit the Gulf Coast as well as a couple other hurricanes had hit. And so we didn't realize this at the time, but pretty much every hotel room was booked from Opelousas to, to almost um, Alabama. It, it was crazy. And so we get in the car and we're like, we'll just go on down the road and we'll find a hotel. Well, we get on the road. We start calling places. We stop stopping at places. And we started stop when we got into Baton Rouge, I remember, I didn't care how much the room cost. We were going to stay somewhere in Baton Rouge. So we're stopping, and back in those days, um, you know, we didn't have just a whole lot of money. So we're stopping at, like, the Marriott, four or five-star hotels, and we're like, we're going to stay right here. Go in, no room for us. So we get in the car, and man, I'm starting to, pa I'm panicking at this point because it's after midnight, and Connor's grumpy, Danny's grumpy, I'm not grumpy, I'm probably the only sane one in the car. <laughs> probably not. Um, and so finally, though, we get on the other side of Baton Rouge, and there is a Hampton Inn, brand new, no cars in the parking lot hardly, and I'm like, well, this place probably isn't open. So we pull in, and they actually were open. We were able to get a, a room that night and, and got a good night's rest. But when I think about that trip, and I think about um, Joseph and Mary coming to Nazareth or, or to Bethlehem, I think that the panic that they must have experienced as they went to probably relatives' homes that they had in the city and said, hey, is there a place that we can stay? Well, Mary, I mean, they were outcasts, weren't they? Mary was pregnant. They weren't married, so they weren't going to let them probably stay at their place. They went to strangers' houses looking for a place to stay. There was no room. They go to the innkeeper. The innkeeper says, we, I have no room, but hey, there's a, you know, I got the barn. You can, you can go in the barn. But I, I just can't imagine the pressure that, that Mary and Joseph were under during this day. 
But here's the deal. When Jesus was born, Bethlehem may not have been much to look at. But what we know is that Bethlehem has had a very rich history. This morning, we're going to look at four different points. And we're going to reach back all the way to Genesis, to the first introduction that we have to Bethlehem. And this is what we find there. Point number one is this. A burial occurred close to Bethlehem. In Genesis chapter 35, beginning in verse 16, we read these words. Then they journeyed from Bethel. When they were still some distance from Ephrathah, Rachel went into labor, and she had hard labor. And when her labor was at its hardest, the midwife said to her, Do not fear, for you have another son. And as her soul was departing, for she was dying, she called his name Benani, but his father called him Benjamin. So Rachel died, and she was buried on the way to Ephrathah, that is Bethlehem. And Jacob set up a pillar over her tomb. It is a pillar of Rachel's tomb, which is there to this day. Our first introduction to Bethlehem is, is a story of both triumph and tragedy. There is a birth that occurs, and there is a death that occurs. What I want us to do is let's go back just a few chapters to Genesis chapter 29, where we're first introduced to Rachel. And what we're introduced to here is a love story like no other in all of Scripture. As, as Jacob comes to the land of his mother's brother, as he comes upon the land, he notices a well there where there are flocks of sheep lying beside it. As he comes to the well, he engages in conversations with, with those that were there, probably shepherds that were there, making preparation to water their sheep. He asks them if they know who Laban is. They acknowledge that they do, and they make reference to his daughter, Rachel, who was a shepherdess, who was out tending the, the sheep on her way to water her own flock. In Genesis 29.10, we read these words. Now, as soon as Jacob saw Rachel, the daughter of Laban, his mother's brother, and the sheep of Laban, his mother's brother, Jacob came near and rolled the stone from the well's mouth and watered the flock of Laban, his mother's brother. What a sight that must have been. Okay, Jacob takes one look at Rachel. And it is really love at first sight. In verse 2, Scripture tells us that there is a stone that covered the well. And it also makes indication that that stone requires more than one person to remove it. That's kind of why they waited for everybody to come to the well before that stone was rolled away, because it was so incredibly heavy. But Jacob, who has just caught the eye of the beautiful woman, what does Jacob do? Jacob kind of shows off his strength, doesn't he? He removes that stone by himself. And you know that Rachel must have been impressed with that. I'm sure that those shepherds there were just like, who is this guy and what is he doing here? Let me ask you this. How many of you men have ever tried to impress your lady before? Okay, raise your hand if you've ever done that. You've tried to show off your brute strength to them. You know, you're kind of like, yeah, it's right over there. You know what I mean? I know all of us men in this room have done that. Let me ask you this. How many of you have ever hurt yourself trying to show off for your, for your lady? I think all of us have done that. Where we've ended up on our back when we've been trying to impress those that we love. Well, Jacob, what he sets out to do is he is going to impress Rachel. 
And that's exactly what he does. Scripture goes on to tell us that Jacob kissed Rachel and wept aloud when he realized that she was the daughter of Laban. In Genesis 29, 15 through 19, we read, Then Laban said to Jacob, Because you are my kinsman, should you therefore serve me for nothing? Tell me, what shall your wages be? Now Laban had two daughters. The name of the older was Leah, and the name of the younger was Rachel. Leah's eyes were weak. But Rachel was a beautiful was beautiful in form and appearance. Jacob loved Rachel, and he said, I will serve you seven years for your younger daughter, Rachel. Laban said, It is better that I give her to you than I should give her to any other man. Stay with me. And one of my favorite verses in this section of Scripture is verse 20. And it says, So Jacob serves seven years for Rachel, and they seemed to him but a few days because of the love he had for her. You know, many of you in this room have been on that kind of a love journey or you've had that kind of a love journey where, where you look back on your life and it's just like just has gone by. You know, I was talking to a gentleman this morning as, as he entered into church and we were, we were basically talking about the good days and the bad days. You know, we have amazing good days, but there's also some rough days, right? But in the scheme of things, our lives are like this, right? We look back on our lives, and it's just a vapor. Those days have just flown by, and that's what we get with Jacob and Rachel in this love story. Jacob loved Rachel. When her her death came, it must have ripped him apart. So we see great joy that comes from the birth of Benjamin in Bethlehem, but there is also great sorrow. This is a great love story, but it pales in comparison to the love story that we see in Scripture for God's love for us, right? That is the most beautiful love story in all of Scripture is God's love for His creation, for each and every one of us in this room. He sent Jesus to this earth to die on the cross for our sins. That is a love story. Next point here is this. Ruth was redeemed in Bethlehem. Within the pages of the book of Ruth, we see a story of tragedy and triumph. The story is told of a man named Elimelech who had a wife named Naomi and two sons from Bethlehem. There was a famine in the land of Bethlehem, so he takes his wife and his two sons and they go to the land of the Moabites. While in the land, Naomi would experience great tragedy, wouldn't she? She would lose her husband. She would lose both of her sons who had taken wives in the land. Can you imagine the emotions this woman must have experienced? She has lost her husband and two children, and she is in a land that is not her own. Some of you have kind of experienced that even in your own life. You found yourself in a, in a moment of, 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 of loneliness because you moved away from family and you've experienced some tragedy in your life and it's just you with no one else around you. That's what we, we see here with Ruth. But she gets word that the Lord had visited the people of Judah and provided them with food. So she decides to sojourn back to Bethlehem. Both daughter-in-law, she says to them, hey, you go back to your mother's house, and you live with them. I have absolutely nothing for you. One daughter-in-law said, okay, I'll do that. I'm going to go back to live with my mother. But the other daughter-in-law, the other daughter-in-law, she says this. This is one of my favorite passages of Scripture in all of God's Word. I know I say that a lot, but it's true here. Ruth chapter 1, verses 15 through 16, we read these words. And, he, and she said, 
See, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. But Ruth said, do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people and your God, my God. The story of Ruth occurs approximately a thousand years before the birth of Christ. But what happens through Ruth is simply amazing. Ruth was a foreigner in the land of Judah. She falls in love with one of the most influential men in all of Bethlehem, a man by the name of Boaz. And Ruth 2.1, we're told that Boaz was a worthy man. Other translations say that he was a man of standing, meaning that, that Boaz was a man of integrity. He was a good man. He was a noble man. He, he was a man that, that did business dealings in a right way. He was a trusted man. And what happens between chapters 2 and 4 is the unfolding of this beautiful love story. Boaz falls in love with Ruth and takes her to be his wife. In Ruth chapter 4 verses 13 through 17, we read these words. So Boaz took Ruth and she became his wife. And he went into her and the Lord gave her conception and she bore a son. Then the women said to Naomi, blessed be the Lord who has not let you this day without a redeemer. And may his name be renowned in Israel. He shall be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age for your daughter-in-law who loves you, who is more to you than seven sons has given birth to him. Then Naomi took the child and laid him on her lap and became his nurse. And the women of the neighborhood gave him a name saying, a son has been born to Naomi. They named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. God redeems both Ruth and Naomi in this chapter. Naomi is given an heir. Ruth is redeemed by Boaz and will become the great-grandmother of King David. Through the birth of Obed, a king would come to redeem the world. And from the bloodline of David, there would be another king that would come to redeem the world. Jesus Christ. David, our third point is this, David was anointed in Bethlehem. So a king is born. All of us know the story of David. If you were with us throughout the summer, we walked through our David sermon series, and you know about David. He was a shepherd boy who was anointed king who had experienced great highs with, with the defeat of Goliath. He would also experience great lows with the affair that he had with Bathsheba. David was a shepherd boy instructed by his father to tend the flocks, to tend the sheep. In 1 Samuel, we read the story of how the prophet Samuel is instructed by God to go to the home of Jesse to anoint the second king of Israel. Scripture tells us that Samuel brings Jesse and all of his sons before him, and, and he looks over every one of the sons, and he takes one look at the oldest son, whose name was Eliab, and thought, surely this is the man that God has chosen as the next king of Israel. But the Lord said to Samuel in 1 Samuel 16, verses 6 through seven, these words. When they came, he looked on Eliab and thought, surely the Lord's anointed is before him. But the Lord said to Samuel, do not look on his appearance or on his height or his stature because I've rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. So after looking over all the sons, Samuel says, is there not another son that you have? And, and Jesse kind of downplays it a little bit and says, well, basically the run of the family is out tending sheep. But man, he's not qualified. 
And what what does Samuel say? Send for David and bring him here. And in verses 11 through 13, reading, he said, There remains yet the youngest, but behold, he is keeping the sheep. And Samuel said to Jesse, Send and get him, for he will not sit down till he comes here. And he sent and brought him in. Now he was ruddy and had beautiful eyes and was handsome. And the Lord said, Arise, anoint him, for this is he. Then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers. And the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that day forward. And Samuel rose up and went to Ramah. Out of Bethlehem comes a king to lead the people of Israel. Scripture tells us that David was a man after God's own heart. Here's what we know about David. David was a flawed king. And within the scope of human history, his reign was very short, right? But there would be another king that would come from the bloodline of David, and that would be King Jesus. And King Jesus' reign will will last for all of eternity, right? Notice our third point this morning is this. Jesus was born in Bethlehem. Greatest birth ever occurred within the city of Bethlehem. Bethlehem means house of bread. It is only fitting that Jesus would declare himself the bread of life, right? Jesus made that declaration because he knew that he was the only one who could truly satisfy the hunger of man's soul. You know, so often you and I tried to find satisfaction in the things of the world, right? We look to the world, we look to our jobs, we look to our family, we look to our families, and in some cases people even look to drugs and alcohol or look to different relationships to try to satisfy the deepest hunger and longing within our souls. But we know there is only one that can satisfy that hunger, and that is King Jesus, the Lord of Lords. The King of Kings, Jesus Christ. There is only one person that can satisfy that hunger, and that is Jesus. Joseph leads Mary to Bethlehem, as instructed by Caesar Augustus. And Jesus did not just come to save us, okay? But he came to identify with our struggles and sympathize with our pains, right? You know, I think all of us in this room would admit that there are some painful days that we've had in the past, And we also know that there's going to be some painful days that we're going to have in the future. It's called life. But here's the deal. Jesus came, and and he is able to relate to anything and everything that you and I are going through. In Hebrews 4.15, we read these words, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. We serve a God who can relate to our every need. In Matthew one twenty three, we read, Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. He is with us, and he is for us. He is your greatest fan. You know what God asks of us in return? That we will worship him, that we will adore him, that we will live for him, that we will allow him to go before us and we will walk in his very steps. The birth of Jesus in Bethlehem validates the inspired word of God. 700 years before Jesus was ever born in the city of Bethlehem, Malachi prophesies that Jesus indeed would be born in the city of Bethlehem. In Micah 5, 2 through 4, we read, But you, O Bethlehem, Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah. From you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, 
whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. Therefore he shall give them up until the time when she who is in labor has given birth. Then the rest of his brothers shall return to the people of Israel, and he shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God, and they shall dwell secure, for now he shall be great to the ends of the earth. And in Luke 2, 6-7 again, And while they were there, the time came for him to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son, wrapped him in swaddling clothes, and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. Jesus was born in Bethlehem. He wasn't born in, in what we would think would be a, 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 a um, safe environment. He wasn't born in, in a home. He was born out in a barn. You know, a lot of times at this time of year, we like to um, look to the innkeeper and we like to throw stones at the innkeeper, don't we? Because how dare him to reject Jesus from being born within his house? How dare him do that? Have you ever thought about that? Have you ever been kind of one of those people that get mad at the innkeeper and we like to villainize him? You know, the innkeeper may not have been a bad man at all. He may have just been a busy man. There was literally no room. He probably had people sleeping on the floor, sleeping everywhere in that house, and there literally was no room for him. You know, most of, in this, most of us in this room can relate. You know, we get so busy during the Christmas season that we forget why we celebrate the season, right? We forget why we celebrate Christmas. We're too busy shopping to remember the king. We're too busy wrapping gifts to remember the king. We're too busy cooking to remember the king. We're too busy on holiday to remember the king. We're too busy doing and going to even share the good news of salvation with those that we come in contact with. You remember the story of Mary and Martha in the Bible? In Luke chapter 10, verses 38 through 42, we get a picture of what um, a, the life of a busy bee looks like as opposed to a person who sits at the feet of Jesus. We read these words, Now as they went on their way, Jesus entered a village, and a woman named Martha welcomed him into her house. And she had a sister called Mary, who sat at the Lord's feet and listened to his teaching. But Martha was distracted with much serving. And she went up to him and said, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to serve alone? Tell her then to help me. But the Lord answered her, Martha, Martha, you are anxious and troubled about many things. But one thing is necessary. Mary has chosen the good portion, which will not be taken away from her. Martha was a worker bee. She welcomed Jesus into her home, but failed to grasp the significance of Jesus being in her home. She was busy serving and planning and preparing. She was so busy that she failed to sit at the feet of the Lord Jesus Christ. But Mary, Mary got it right, didn't she? Mary sat at the feet of Jesus. My prayer for all of us in this room this morning as we continue to walk through this Christmas season together. My prayer is that we will get it right this Christmas. Let's find ourselves praying more, reading more, studying more, sharing more, sharing the greatest gift that this world has ever been introduced to, and that's Jesus Christ with those that we know do not have a relationship with him.
You know, even this day, I'm sure there are hundreds of children born every year in Bethlehem, but no birth compares to the birth of Jesus. You see, when Jesus came to this earth to bridge a gap between man and God, he provided a way that all of us in this room could be saved from our sins. If you're here this morning and you do not have a relationship with Jesus Christ, I want to invite you this morning to make the greatest decision that you could ever make. And that is to confess with your mouth that Jesus Christ is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead. The Bible says that if you do that, you will be saved. And if you have never done that, if you've never repented of your sins, if you've never begun following Jesus and living for Jesus, I want to invite you this morning to make that decision. I'm going to be standing here at the front, and I would love to share with you more about how you can do that. But as we close this morning, I want you once again just to think to yourself and realize you may think you are little, okay, in the, in the scope of human history and within this world, but you are not insignificant. There is not an insignificant person in this room because all of us have been created by God. All of us are loved by God. And all of us have an opportunity to know God. If you're here and you don't know him, then I want to invite you to get to know him. Let's stand together. We're going to enter into a time of invitation. And I'm going to lead us in a time of prayer. Let's stand together. Let's pray. Father God, we come before you now, Lord Jesus. Father, thanking you, Lord Jesus, for your word. Thanking you for the story of redemption that, that is full and throughout all of your word. Father, thank you for the beautiful love stories in there. Thank you for the reminder of, of the consequences for our sin. Thank you for the picture of grace that we see in your word where you came to this earth and lived a perfect life and did not sin, but yet you went to the cross. You died on that cross for our sins, and three days later you rose to life again, providing a way for all of us in this room to enter into an eternal relationship with you. And so, Father, I pray now if there's someone here that does not know you, that today they will get to know you, that they'll cry out to you to be Lord and Savior of their life. Father, I pray that you will just draw them unto yourself for salvation. Lord, I also pray, Father, that if there is some here in this room, Lord Jesus, that you're leading to make this their church home, that, they will, that they'll do that. Lord, I pray that if there are some within this room, Lord, that you are just dealing with and working with right now and just, just making it abundantly clear that, hey, you're just too busy. You've gotten so busy that you're, you're, you're too busy to allow me to come. And so, Father, I know that all of us get busy like that. Forgive us for that. Remind us of, of, of why we celebrate Christmas. Lord, we love you and we thank you. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So if there's a decision you need to make this morning, you come. I want to invite you to come um, and trust Jesus as your Lord and Savior. If the Lord's leading you to make friendship your church home, you come. If, if you need to come and kneel at this altar, you do that. But just for the next few moments, let's just bow our head. Let's close our eyes. Let's spend the next few moments in prayer. And as we pray, just ask the Lord, Lord, how would you have me to respond to your message today, to your word today?